I don't think that the Israelis are to blame for a situation that was created by the Palestinians. What do you feel about the fact that people in the West Bank live in what's so-called open-air prison? I was a student. I can tell you first-hand testimony that you were literally afraid to take a bus because you really had no idea if you're actually going to finish that ride. There are a bunch of those Instagram videos that I was shown shot in West Bank, how they're treated with no respect at all. I'm sure it happened regretfully that they're taking the wrong decisions. But if you're saying, if this is some kind of a protocol that is in the IDF, that you're supposed to treat the local Palestinian population in a shitty manner and degrade them and humiliate them and so forth, I promise you this is this is not the case. This is actually quite the opposite. I know that you served in Army yourself. Have you served in West Bank? I served in the West Bank. What was some of the most disturbing things you saw? Hey guys, welcome to Soul to Soul. Last week we released my conversation with my friend Satu, who shares his perspective on situation with Israeli and Palestinian conflict. Today I would like to discuss the position of the other side, because a lot of you told me, Anatoly, if you talk about the complicated topics, you need to discuss both positions. And I completely agree with you. And I have an amazing person here today to discuss it, my good friend Arik. We have traveled together in Israel numerous times. He is an amazing tour guide. He has a deep knowledge of the country, of everything that's happening. He lived in Israel. We're doing a Zoom call, which I don't usually do. Uh, we try to do it in studio as much as possible, but I think he's one of the best people to talk about it. So that's why we are making exception here. Arik, welcome. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Doing great, my friend. Doing great. Um, Thank you for taking this. I know uh, it's not easy to talk about the conflict, uh, especially when you live in Israel. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, hope we'll have uh, a good conversation about it. I think we're gonna what we're going to do is we're going to reference some of the things that Satu said. You watched his episode as well. You have your opinions about it, which is great. Um, in general... What's your opinion to that uh, episode? He's talking from uh, the perspective of someone that his family had to endure, you know, uh, catastrophe from his point of view. His people, uh, the Palestinians, are until today uh, stateless without any possibility for getting uh, their independence and uh, living as refugees, either uh, in what is called the West Bank today. Uh, or outside uh, Israel, uh, if it's Lebanon, Syria, or even you know the U.S. and 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 so forth. So from his perspective, he's uh, still living the the trauma uh, of the past, like it's the present, and uh, it's totally understandable because this is their this is their present. I cannot take away from his pain. You can definitely hear that he's in pain. I know that some things he said are not widely accepted, at least by the state of Israel. He shared his view on how the uh, state of Israel was established, that um, essentially paraphrasing what he said, that Christians, Muslims, and Jews lived on the territory in peace. And then after World War II, it was decided to establish the state of Israel 
in that territories. And then a lot of people from Europe start to migrate to the land and the people who lived on the land were essentially kicked out of the land. What do you think about that? I guess I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here. Basically, we have a situation here in general that both sides are right and both sides are wrong on the same time. Both sides are not very empathetic to the other side, and uh, you know it's kind of a dialogue of death people. Uh, if if we're trying to understand the origins of the conflict, the Jews that were living in exile, I mean, there's no historical debate what your friend uh, defined as Palestine for basically, let's say, around 3,000 years ago, it was uh, what we call the land of Israel. What I'm trying to say that uh, Jews were exiled at some point and lived in the diaspora for uh, thousands of years. And in the 19th century, the Zionist movement was formed, very much influenced by this rays of nationalism uh, in, in Europe in the 19th century. Uh, Jews started to come uh, in small, let's say, numbers in the beginning. Uh, if you want this kind of pattern, persecutions that were mainly caused uh, in the eastern parts of Europe, uh, what we call pogroms, uh, if it's Poland or Russia or Ukraine territory today, uh, Jews had to find a refuge. Uh, most of them didn't even choose chose Palestine uh, or the land of Israel. They went to other places uh, that were much better, much more appealing, let's say, uh, like the U.S. And uh, and a few basically chose to come here uh, and be part of the what we call the Zionist movement. This political this political movement that was aspiring to come uh, to build uh, a Jewish state in what was in those days called uh, Palestine. But it's worth mentioning, I guess, that the until the 1948 war, the land was acquired, you know, fair and square. The land was actually bought. If the Jewish National Fund, and that was, this, uh, that was basically the economical branch of the Zionist movement, had enough resources, which it hadn't, uh, they would have bought probably the entire land of Israel, this entire country, but they couldn't. They had basically very few resources because uh, in the beginning, the Zionist movement was a kind of a, a movement that was uh, in the fringes and uh, of, of the few. If you were very crazy, single, looking for adventures, you would join the Zionist movement and uh, leave uh, Europe like Berlin or Paris or whatever and come and live here in the middle of nowhere because there was nothing here, basically. And what I'm trying to say that uh, they come, they came here and bought uh, the land, at least in the beginning, until the 1948 war, uh, fair and square. And there were basically, those lands were sold by Arabs. Some of them were even Palestinians that aided and were basically looking to make a profit. So I want to kind of mark a point here that First, they weren't, in the beginning, they weren't really aware of what's going on. They didn't understand that there is like a plan here, that the Jews are coming here and there's like some kind of an organized movement that is aspiring to form a national home or a state for the Jews. But even after they realized that, uh, they were more than willing, at least some of them, including some of the dominant families that was in the leadership of the Palestinians, uh, they sold their assets, they sold those those properties to make easy money because uh, the Jews were willing to pay. 
And then when the 1948 war broke out, uh, it's a different story. The Palestinians and the Arab countries chose to reject the UN decision to part what was in those days Palestine. And then the war broke out. And that, at least from the Jewish perspective, from this young state was, that was formed, it was either we're going to survive this war or we're going to lose. And that's be, that will be the end of the state. And then I do agree that after that, in 1948 war, the state of Israel definitely acquired land that was not given uh, to the Jewish state in the, in the decision of partition. In, in November 1947. Now, your friend used this terminology of ethnic cleansing, and that's, I think, is disinformation here, because the mainstream historians don't define what happened in the 1948 war as ethnic cleansing. There were no, there was, there were no plans, or at least no organized plans, to just kick out the Palestinians from those territories. I mean, it doesn't really take to kind of minimize the fact that uh, it was a catastrophe for them, but uh, there was no plan. Of course, uh, the Israeli forces in some situations had to forcibly move uh, those populations, civilian populations that were still there, uh, because they were understaffed, undermanned. And in a way, I guess there was some kind of an interest to just get rid of them. And this is what, this is what they did. But on a larger scale, it's not like there was a plan from day one since uh, the beginning of the war in 1948 to just kick out all the Palestinian and just take their land. And that was the master plan. There was no such plan, but there were definitely, I'm sure, discussions, let's say initiatives on a local level of the military commanders in certain situations that uh, definitely did that. Uh, it's not hundreds of thousands, but it's definitely on the level of tens of thousands Palestinians that were put on trucks and, and taken to the West Bank outside the, the borders of the, of the Jewish state. That, that's definitely happened. But that's all after 1948. Until then, it was uh, fair and square. I want to ask the question, what would have been happening the vice versa if uh, the Palestinians would have won the war and the Arab countries would have won the war? What would have been happening to the Jewish population that would, you know, that would have lost that war? I don't want to even imagine, but basically, I promise you that the fate of the Jews probably would have been much grimmer, but uh, we won't go into that. The other side would say that the war would not happen if lots of new Jewish settlers would not move in and it would not be established the state of Israel. I guess that was a trigger point for the Arabs living there to to start a war. Would that be true, in your opinion? In my opinion, I don't think it's a legitimate claim. Jews that decided to come, it was during the Ottoman period. The Ottomans was an empire. Jews were allowed to come. They came here legally. I mean, they didn't have an issue coming. It wasn't a political entity that was belonging to the Palestinians. Moreover, I think that only when the, the first uh, Jewish... Uh, settlers came. Only then, when there's some kind of a reaction, the Palestinian movement was uh, clearly defined, let's say this way, because uh, until then, their definition as a people, as a distinct nation, let's say this way, was kind of blurry. They always uh, saw themselves as a part of the 
you know, Arab people. And as a political entity, they were thinking about forming a political entity with uh, Syria and Egypt. And only afterwards, they were talking about an independent Palestinian movement, uh, a national movement that was basically defining themselves as a as a separate people, as a separate nation, which, which, by the way, you can argue what makes them so different. I don't want to go into that because, again, we have uh, very limited time. But uh, you can argue about their uh, definition as a people and their origins historically, where they're exactly coming from, even the name of the of the country Palestine. I mean, uh, the, the 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 name Palestine was until the 1920s uh, was a geographical term. It was uh, basically an area in the Levant which is today, you know, Lebanon and Israel and, and Jordan mainly. But it was in the second century when the, the name of the province was changed to Palestina, in other words, Palestine. But before that, the name of the, of the region was uh, Judea. Judea, naming it after the Jews that were living here. Then in the second century, uh, you had a Roman emperor named Adrian that decided to change the name because... He kicked out the Jews or he, he, let's say, legislated or issued out these anti-Jewish edicts and he changed the name of the province deliberately, changing it to Palestine or Palestina, naming it after the famous Philistines that are mentioned in the Bible, the bitter enemies of the Israelites in the 11th uh, century BCE, 11th century BCE. And uh, and basically trying to kind of hit uh, and annoy the Jews or even erase uh, the Jewish kind of characteristic of the province. And that's where the name Palestine came from. So it's a name that was here even before what we call today the Palestinians, right? So this name is here regardless to the Palestinians that were living here or not living here many, many, many centuries right. afterward. So... So it's got nothing ask, to do with the actual people. I, I want to ask a few yeah, questions about the establishment and then we'll go to the current period. Um, the one interesting thing that I learned um, from the conversation so too was that at some point there were thoughts to create state of Israel in other places. One of them he mentioned was in Uganda. We checked that. There's a document that I found is called Uganda Scheme uh, by... Um, Joseph Chamberlain of Britain to put state of Israel in Uganda. So it seems like the state could have been in uh, other places as well. Yeah, you could have talked to me when I would had a bone in my nose and something on my throat here, like in Africa somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you know about that? Is that something that 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 you learned as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was definitely. Other territories, including Uganda, that was on the table. You know, there were different factions uh, in the Zionist movement. There were people that were called territorialists, people that basically insisting on the land of Israel uh, as uh, as the only haven, as the only as the only home for the Jews. And there were other people, including Herzl, by the way, the founder of the Zionist movement, that because Again, because of those pogroms, those violent uh, actions against Jews in the eastern parts of Europe, 
that basically dozens of dozens of Jews were massacred sometimes in violent events by the local population, sometimes by the government, sometimes by local population. But what I'm trying to say is that they were looking for a temporary solution. And because Uganda was actually British territory in those days, Uganda was at least for a second was on the table and uh, very quickly that uh, those options were taken off the table. The land of Israel as a territory is so integral to the Jewish identity. I guess if you read the Bible, you understand that. I mean, the Holy Scripture, the Holy, the, the books that the Jews are living by, not uh, if you're secular like me, but religious Jews, if you read the Bible, the Holy Scripture, the, the land of Israel is a fundamental part of the Jewish identity. I mean, for example, the Jewish religion is a, a religion of commandments. You have a commandments that you have to fulfill, basically, to become, let's say, what we can call a, a righteous Jew. Uh, it starts with the Ten Commandments, right? Shall not kill, shall not commit adultery, and so forth. But one-third of the commandments, and there's like 600 of them, one-third of the commandments are commandments that are related to the land of Israel. That unless you are in the land of Israel, you cannot fulfill those commandments. So what I'm trying to say that uh, the land of Israel is an integral part of the Jewish identity. It's almost inseparable. Uh, the fact that Jews were living in the diaspora for hundreds of hundreds of years doesn't mean that for hundreds of hundreds of years, for like two millenniums, Jews were hoping, aspiring, and physically going uh, to the land of Israel as a pilgrimage to visit, visit uh, their an, an ancestral home. So this is not undermining or minimizing the claims that the Palestinians have on, on this land, because I, I don't take it away from them that they lived here for a few hundred years, 200 years, 300 years before uh, the 1948 uh, war started. But, you know, in the end, the land of Israel was not chosen by accident. The Israel was not chosen by chance. There were definitely other offers because of the reality and the situations in those days in the 19th century. But really, in the end, for most, the absolute majority of the Jews that were a part of the Zionist movement, the land of Israel was the only option. Uganda could have been given technically to the to the Zionist movement and problem solved, but still they chose to go for the almost undoable situation, and that's forming a Jewish state in in the land of Israel. So the point of view I heard before was that because there's a lot of options on, on a on a table, building a state on the birthplace of all the religions is asking for a conflict. I personally think that Israel is a is a Jewish state, you know, as a Jewish and, and democratic state. Don't forget that Israel, at least to the best of my knowledge, is until today the only democracy in the Middle East. Uh, you know, the the Middle East uh, is a, a very turbulent, unstable area. You have all kinds of uh, regimes around us. Uh, you can see what's going on today in Syria. You can see what's going on in other parts of the Middle East. Israel is the only democracy today that actually functions and, and works as a democracy with all its uh, problems. 
Um, as I'm not sure uh, if your viewers and your audience know that, but uh, 20% of the population of Israel is, uh, is Arabs. And 60% of those 20% are people that are defining themselves as Palestinians. I mean, those Arabs are basically, you know, Palestinians that chose to stay in the 1948 war uh, or their descendants. They're living here very happily. They're thriving. Uh, they're not moving to other parts of the world. I, did, I, I don't see them moving to the West Bank or to Jordan. Uh, they're doing very well here economically. Um, but yes, uh, one of the fundamental ideas why the state of Israel was actually funded is to actually live according to a Jewish state. But it's not a dictatorship and we don't, uh, you know, it has a freedom of uh, ritual for all religions, including Muslims and including Christians. Uh, they all basically can worship freely with no limitations at all. Something that I cannot really say about what's going on in the West Bank, in the Palestinian Authority. What do you feel about the fact that people in a West Bank uh, live in what's so-called open-air prison, that many of them cannot leave the territory? First, I want to go back to the reason why they're, you can call it a prison. I mean, don't forget, the prison goes both ways. Israelis also can go beyond that wall. Israelis are also living in a very sad reality because we, because Israel is not really welcomed in the Middle East until today. So Israel in, is, is in many ways uh, is some kind of a ghetto. You know, it's also some kind of a mini prison. You cannot go beyond the fence in Lebanon because Lebanon is an enemy state that basically still is uh, waving war against Israel. You cannot go to Syria. Syria is still a country that is in basically an enemy state with uh, Israel. You cannot really go to Palestine. The Palestinians did, doesn't really like us, and I'm sure that if a Jew would try to get to Palestine, we both know what's going to happen to him. Uh, and Jordan, in Egypt, we basically got a peace uh, treaty with them recently. 60% uh, of Jordan is Palestinians, um, and also Egypt. Uh, it's a, an agreement that was signed... Uh, a couple of decades ago with uh, both of them, but basically it's not a very warm agreement uh, and so forth, but it's also all fenced off. Uh, can I put one comment then? I mean, to me, the difference is that Arik can just jump on a plane and come to Bali and have an amazing uh, tea ceremony with me while somebody living in Palestine uh, so cannot actually, by the jump way, on I a can, plane. I, so, so actually, I cannot go to Bali. Israelis cannot go to Indonesia or Bali unless they have a foreign passport because Indonesia, I'm sure you know, is a Muslim state, right? Yeah, one of and, the biggest Muslim states in the world. You're, you're right. And Israelis cannot go to like 40-something countries that are basically, or at least uh, dozens of them that are Muslim countries that don't accept Israelis. But okay, I, I can understand your argument and I'm, and, and I'm going to answer that. But go, let's go back to the wall. Let's go back to what happened with the Palestinians. Why did this wall, were, why did this wall were, was ever raised? Let's go historically when it happened. So let's go back to 2002, okay? When the second Palestinian uprising started, the second Palestinian uprising manifested itself by Palestinians sending their own women and children 
and sometimes men, sending their own people, civilians, uh, as suicide bombers to what was the, you know, territory of the state of Israel and basically bombed themselves up in buses, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes two and three times a day. Uh, officially, it was the bloodiest civilian confrontation that Israel ever had to endure. I was actually a student. I was living in Jerusalem in 2002 and three and four all the way to 2010. So I was living there. And I can tell you from, you know, firsthand testimony um, that you were literally afraid to take a bus uh, because you really had no idea if you're actually going to finish that ride. I was living in a neighborhood. We had a coffee shop over there. A Palestinian suicide bomber went and blew up that coffee shop with people in it. And wow. dozens of people died. Okay. And then, of course, the government helped him, gave him compensation to repair and to renovate the coffee shop. And then six months later, another suicide bomber, another Palestinian, went into that coffee shop and bombed themselves and killed more Jewish people. And sometimes they actually killed even Palestinians or Arab Israelis uh, because they didn't really discriminate from Jews or not Jews. They just bombed everything. And the state of Israel in the end is a state that has to make sure that their civilians are safe. Now, where those suicide bombers came from? They came from the West Bank. They came from the outskirts of Jerusalem, from villages and towns that were outside Jerusalem. And unfortunately, the, the situation was that the only way that we could actually have some kind of safety for Israeli civilians, including Arabs that are living here, is to raise a physical barrier, some kind of a physical war, a physical wall that would basically going to keep out those suicide bombers. Now, unfortunately, that was creating the famous uh, separation wall. In some sections, by the way, most of that wall is actually just a, a barbed wire fence that in many, many occasions, Palestinians pass that fence without no problem. But yes, some sections that it's kind of passing through neighborhoods, you have a physical wall. But again, I don't think that the Israelis are to blame for a situation that was created by the Palestinians. The reason why the wall was actually built is to supply safety to the Israeli civilians. And in the end, as a sovereign state, the state of Israel has to take care of its civilians. And unfortunately, that wall was raised because of that. Uh, and what and you know what? The suicide bombers dropped by over 90%. They couldn't get to Israel. So if you're looking for any justification of building that wall, is that after the wall was actually built, suicide attacks uh, on buses and, and you know restaurants and such in downtown Jerusalem and other parts of Israel diminished considerably. It's a sad situation that the, the war was actually ever created because in the end we all want to live in peace. Uh, but is that what it needed to take to create safety for Israeli civilians? Is that what we, it's going to be? That's what's going to happen. Uh, but do you believe that uh, most of the population of Palestine are suicide bombers or just people like yourself who want to live in their homes and just be happy and free? 
I think the average Palestinian just want to live his life. But basically, the Palestinians had a lot of different opportunities to uh, form their states. Uh, I think today, the situation of what's going on in Palestine is uh, a situation of uh, that is mainly on what's going on with the inside the Palestinian leadership and inside the Palestinian territory. If you're asking me what most Palestinians are, I don't think most Palestinians want to go on buses and, uh, and blow themselves up. But in the end, it's, it's part of what we call, uh, you know, fundamental Islam. That's not something that you can, you know, take it away from that. I mean, uh, there is definitely some extremists. And, and even though there are extremists on both sides, I don't see, you know, Jews that went and uh, basically bombed themselves up in in downtown Ramallah or in downtown Bethlehem. But fundamental Islam is, is something that is very different uh, and it's very radical. Uh, but it's not the average Palestinian, you know. I think the average Palestinian is like more or less like the average Israeli. They both want to live in peace, uh, but there is definitely a lot of incitement uh, that is going on in the Palestinian side. There, the way they are basically educate their future generation, and it will be very difficult to create a situation of uh, coexistence when they raising your kids to the fact that Israel doesn't exist, like your friend, you know, the friend, your friend didn't even call this part of the world Israel, right? From his point of view, Israel didn't exist, right? He couldn't even yes. say it. And I think that's by itself kind of rests my point, because he looks like a pretty average person to me, but he can't even accept the fact that it's, Today it's Israel. It's the state of Israel. Israel is not going to go away. Israel is not going to disappear. You can say Palestine as much as you want. The Israelis are not going to go and move anywhere. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, at least the way I, you know, if I would have been a little bit more sensitive, I would get offended. I mean, you cannot, you cannot even call this area that he went around and toured and visited. You can't even call it Israel. It's all his. According to his point of view, Haifa, all those areas that are basically, from his perspective, are still Palestinian. So I want to ask you, how can, how can you have a dialogue with someone that doesn't even recognize the existence of, of a state that is here for 75 years? And again, I don't think it's only him. I think it's a lot of Palestinians that are living in the past uh, and they cannot move forward. And they cannot basically collect the pieces of what happened. You know, the people that the Jews that came to Israel were Holocaust survivors. The people that came from Israel were basically Arab Jews that got kicked out from Arab countries, never got compensated for their assets that they left back in those countries because, um, of course, those Arab countries wouldn't compensate them, right? And they came here from nothing and they were able to build a thriving country. Now, the Palestinians, uh, because they had, uh, you know, miscalculations and they took the wrong decisions, um, are basically the only ones that they could blame themselves for the situation that they're at today. I mean, uh, you have to basically at some point claim ownership for your mistakes. And uh, 
unfortunately, that's something that is happening until today. It's very easy to point the finger on somebody else and say, he's at blame. Our miserable situation is because of them. If they were not here, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what we would, we will be like, um, I don't know what, like America. But let's look at what's going on on other parts of the Middle East. And uh, what I'm trying to say is that at some point you have to stop, you know, living the past and and, and, and move forward and, and live the present and start trying to create a future coexistence. And uh, But that's not the situation that is in Palestine. And that's only, in a, you know, I'm trying to put it in a nutshell. I'm not even talking about the Gaza Strip, that is, Israel is under attack constantly from the Hamas movement, from the Gaza Strip. And I'm not talking about what's going on recently in the West Bank, all those different uh, terror attacks and so forth. So, you know, in the end, um, at some point, you have to continue and live uh, your life. From my conversation, I definitely felt that the biggest part, and I'm not speaking for Satu, but this is how I interpreted his feelings, is mostly that he's just, angry for the fact that there are regular people not related to the government living these territories who are oppressed by Israeli military, who don't have the basic rights, who cannot live uh, freely, who cannot go out of the country. And uh, to me, it's always a distinction between the government and the people. Uh, and I understand that often what government mistakes that government make, people have to pay for it. Uh, but on the other end, uh, I'm sure that in 21st century, there are better ways to find peace uh, than to sort of lock people out and just don't give them uh, the freedom and they will be just more angry. Uh, and I'm talking about regular people let's say, like Satu, who is not the suicide bomber who would come to Israel and, and do it. He was in Israel before, and he uh, he knows uh, Israeli-Palestinians. Um, so I, th I think from what I understood, that is the main anger, why they don't want to call it Israel. I can understand their anger. I can understand the frustration. But in the end, bottom line, uh, we need to look at that from a bird's eye view, and from let's let's play let's play a scenario that uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, are pulling out from the West Bank, okay, the same way they pulled out from Gaza Strip, okay, and they're telling the telling the Palestinians, you know what, you're right. Um, here you go. You can self-govern. You can have an army. You can have tanks. You can have guns. You can have you know, F-15s and so forth, F-16s, you can have uh, bombers, and you can run your own country. We believe in peace and love, okay? Uh, from, again, from a perspective of a state uh, that basically just pulled out without any agreement, just, you know, the same way that happened in Gaza, and I'm sure you and your viewers know what's going on with, with the Hamas movement in Gaza, um, maybe some would be very happy and say, okay, great, now we can live our lives. And some, a considerable chunk, would say, great, we have tanks, 
we don't have just uh, rockets that are you know intercepted by the Israeli technology. Uh, we have tanks, we have weapons, we have advanced weapons, we have uh, two free ton bombs. Uh, we can use even that. And 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 in the end, the idea somebody you know from a perspective of a sovereign country that is living in a very troubled area, an area of conflict. Okay, this is not. Um, we are not uh, kids. Uh, we're not playing. Uh, we're not fighting with sticks. Uh, we are fighting with deadly weapons that kill civilians. So, from a country that is trying to take care of the safety of its civilians, from a security perspective, uh, the IDF would wouldn't pull out uh, unless it would know that uh, you know the government that is giving it to. To govern uh, would be able to make sure that it's going to be a friendly country. It's going to be a friendly border. Trust me, no country in the world wants to spend uh, 15% of its uh, budget every year on security. They would be happily be willing to spend it on education, on, on healthcare, on whatever. But that's a part of the reality here, living here. Uh, so, and I, I, I promise you that it's not because we want to, it's because we actually really have a security risk here. Uh, and until that's going to be solved, uh, I think uh, uh, there is, uh, there is a, the, the, the Palestinians couldn't uh, have their own, you know, their own country, even though I would very much want that they would form their own country. Um, uh, still. Uh, it's not going to happen until Israel would know for sure that it's a friendly country. So let's take the uh, situation where uh, the wall is gone for now out of the table. The other, the other thing that we discussed that I want to raise here and hear your opinion on is the treatment of Palestinians, regular Palestinians, by the um, Israeli Defense Forces. There are a bunch of those. Uh, Instagram videos that I was shown shot in uh, West Bank, how they're mistreated and they're uh, they're kicked and they're treated with no respect at all. What are your thoughts on that? And is that something that that you've seen? Um, anything you want to share? I think that an occupation, because in the end, that's what's going on in the West Bank. Uh, the Palestinian, that local population, in the end, is occupied by the IDF that um, is, is a foreign army. It's not their people. And I think that kind of situation uh, is, uh, is a source for a lot of problem and a lot of friction. I think uh, a soldier that is living their daily reality there down there that has to make sense. In the end, we are talking about 18-year-old kids. Um, they didn't really have proper training how to deal with civilian population. They're dealing with very, very complicated situations over there and living their very day-to-day gray routine of, you know, checking IDs and so forth. And I think this situation is is is, is very bad. It's uh, not something that is supposed to happen. I think the IDF is not supposed to be there, but unfortunately, it's, it's, it's has to be there. There are definitely some, you know, some occasions, some incidents. This, this is a situation that two societies here 
are, you know, at constant friction, constant attacks of uh, one and the other, um, and terror attacks and so forth. And, and that reality is also, uh, is, so that soldier that is now in the West Bank, that is living that reality on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, uh, basically it's a complicated reality for anyone, especially for an 18-year-old. And, and there are definitely incidents that I'm sure uh, happen uh, regretfully, uh, that they're taking the wrong decisions or they're not acting according to protocol. But if you're saying, you know, if this is some kind of a protocol uh, that uh, is uh, in the IDF that you're supposed to treat uh, the local Palestinian population in a shitty manner and degrade them and humiliate them and so forth. I promise you that this is this is not the case. This is actually quite the opposite. The reason why you know those uh, incidents are reaching the news because there are some kind of a of an exception, and uh, there are basically something that are very rare. Most IDF soldiers are basically trying to do their tasks that was given to them in the best possible way, without uh, you know degrading or humiliating civilians. Uh, in certain situations, because we are talking about two different people in two different nations, one a nation that doesn't really want the IDF there. The other, the IDF, those soldiers that I promise you doesn't want to be there, at least uh, most of them, um, creates a lot of uh, situations, complicated human situations that could escalate to what you hear about sometimes in the news. Uh, sadly, yes, Palestinians are suffering from profiling. Sadly, it's true. Palestinians are definitely are under occupation of a foreign army. There's suddenly a checkpoint in the West Bank, you know, and uh, that's a situation that nobody wants. I mean, even I, as an Israeli, when I see the police stopping traffic and I'm saying, like, you know, what what the, you know, and, and I'm getting angry even if it's, if it's my own police for this unnecessary uh, traffic jam. Usually it's because of this uh, terror attack that happened and they're looking for the, for the terror attacker. So they're stopping traffic. Uh, so it's definitely true. On the other side, uh, saying this IDF blocks or whatever, and they're stopping every Palestinian and so forth. Nobody wants that. But again, unfortunately, until if we're looking at the meta, if we're looking on the overall overview, until the Palestinians would be able to prove, not just to Israel, by the way, to the, to the world, until they're going to have a functioning economy, until they're going to have a proper democracy, until they're going to be able to self-govern, until they're going to be, get, be able to get rid of all those different radical factions and radical Islamic movements that are thriving, until that situation in Palestine is going to be resolved, unfortunately, before the IDF, it was the Jordanian army uh, and so forth. So what I'm trying to say, nobody really wants this reality and this situation, but uh, the IDF uh, is there because uh, it has to make sure that that law and order and the safety of Israel is, is kept. I know that you served in the army yourself. Uh, have you served in West Bank? I served in the West Bank. And what was let's say, some of the most disturbing things you saw, if you can share. 
I don't know if we can go into that, but basically, you know, I saw some situations that were definitely unpleasant to uh, to people, to the local population, and to you know Israeli soldiers. But uh, if you're seeing it from through the prism of a normal situation like a society, so you're saying, okay, yeah, that's definitely. But again, you're living here in the reality, the Middle East in general, and what's going on here with the Palestinians specifically. It's not a normal situation. It's not like a it's not like a situation that is parallel to what's going on in other parts of the world. I'm not sure if you're following the news of what happened yesterday. Yesterday there were two Israelis that were shot dead in the West Bank. Uh, Israelis that went to fix their car uh, in a garage in a Palestinian town called Hawara, and a Palestinian came up to them and shot them from point blank, a father and a son, uh, and they died. And that's happening here routinely in the last few months. What I'm trying to say, and, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that it's not happening on the other side, the other side as well. You have Palestinians um, dying from uh, IDF forces and other situations as well. So that's also happening as well. But again, this is a situation here that it's an ongoing conflict. It's a conflict that is not yet resolved. And unfortunately, until you're going to have the proper leadership on both sides that will be able to try and resolve this issue in some way or another, that's uh, the reality that both sides have to pay uh, to live in, in this situation. Nobody, wa nobody yeah. wants that. Nobody... Not on the Israeli side sure. and not on the Palestinian side. For sure. The other thing that Satu talked about that happened actually recently, and uh, I also was listening to the podcast preparing for it with Mohammed Al-Kudar, if I'm not mistaken, the journalist from Palestine. He mentioned it as well. Janine, month ago, about 500 Palestinians were forced to leave their home. 100 people were injured and 12 were dead because the Israeli army were looking for the militants in the village. So rates like that, that displace people, injure civilians, and maybe kill the, the militants who need to be killed. Um, what's, what's your view on something like that? In the 1990s, there was a peace agreement that was supposed to basically start, that was basically launched. It was called the... The Oslo, the Oslo Accords. It was uh, it was signed between uh, Rabin and Yasser Arafat, and the Palestinians basically got in those uh, in, in that agreement they got this self-governing situation in Palestinian cities. Basically, the Palestinians control the Palestinian cities, uh, including Jenin, including Ramallah, and Shechem. In other words, Nablus and Bethlehem and so forth. They are controlling those. In other words, Palestinian police has uh, their own forces that are is supposed to deal with that situation. Uh, when you have those kind of uh, extremists and all kinds of terrorists that are hiding in the Palestinian cities, because that's the only way, that's the only place that they can hide in. Um, and if, if those Palestinian forces are not able, like in Jenin, Jenin is a known area of uh, Palestinian terrorists 
they're basically hiding out there and by the hundreds and they're basically using Janine as a haven as some kind of a refuge to escape from from the law and from those uh, you know terror attacks that they committed not just planning to commit but also committed they have blood on their hands uh, Jewish Israelis uh, citizens that were basically killed by them and if the Palestinian forces uh, won't take care of it. So again, you have a situation that the IDF forces will have to do it, right? Um, nobody wants to go to Palestine and to claim them accountable for their actions and and basically make sure that those uh, killers and those assassins would uh, be accountable for their actions. If people are coming from its territory and they're using it as the basis for their terror attacks, so again, unfortunately, the IDF will have to do it. Um, and and sometimes you have what we call, this is a, what we call collateral damage. Sometimes, yes, in order to get to those terrorists, you have to move people. You have to take the, the other civilians out. You have to tell them, listen, we're going to perform here a military operation. You gotta get out. If you're not gonna get out, you're gonna be killed. So you need to you you need to decide, you know, where you wanna be. I don't know about ma- many military organizations that basically give a notice to people, uh, to civilians. Listen, guys, you need to clear away because we need to take care of those guys. By the way, many of those terrorists use that and they escaped with those civilians with their cars, and they just escaped from where the battles taken place because the Israeli forces just gave them the heads up. They told them, listen, we're going to attack. You need to you need to clear out. And many of those terrorists, because they were cowards, uh, basically escaped. So it goes both ways. And like I said, in the end, the state of Israel has one and only priority that it's going to take care of. And that's the safety of its citizens. Okay. Other thing that is interesting to me that actually was new to me was Israeli settlers in West Bank. So according to Satu, there's a lot of Israeli settlers that are coming to West Bank and living in West Bank. So he was talking about Hebron. Um, They put like nets because the settlers are throwing trash uh, down below. Again, there's no videos I've seen of Israeli settlers are throwing a trash, but there are definitely uh, trash nets installed. And I've seen one Palestinian journalist were uh, were there filming filming around. Then I was checking the information, and then I learned that there's a Hebron Fund in United States that is supporting settlers. And I read the article in The Guardian that they pay those settlers to move to Hebron. So for me, that is very strange. Why would you pay Jews in America to move to West Bank? It just kind of brings you back to the broader scope of this conflict that is also not just over territory, it's over what some of the Israelis believe that, you know, in the end, this is all part of the biblical land of Israel. You know, if you read the Bible, Hebron, Shechem, uh, that's today Nablus in the West Bank, Bethlehem, 
and so forth, and what we call today Samaria and Judea, those areas, in other words, the West Bank. This is the biblical heartland. This is the really the, if you're talking about all the biblical accounts, the patriarchs, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, it's all there. You know, the tribes of Benjamin and and so forth. And uh, so it's all basically taking place over there. And and for those Jewish settlers, this is really the beginning of the of the ancestral home of the Jewish state. Clearly, they have a, a very kind of high ideological motivation to to go and move and settle there. Uh, and yes, I do not support that, and I can like definitely condemn that. I don't think that would contribute, and that would actually help to gain peace between the two factions. And and in that in that aspect, I think that the Israelis or or that specifically what's going on over there is not something that is going to help the Israeli cause. Um, but from their perspective, it's it's regardless to you know to the fact that. Um, it's a part of Israel or not part of Israel. They want to live in Hebron because this is where the patriarchs are buried, at least from their perspective. And um, I remind you that in uh, the beginning of the 20th century, there was a Jewish community that was living there uh, in 1929. Okay, There were hundreds of hundreds of Jews that were living in Hebron. They were living there. They were actually descendants, by the way, there were descendants of Spanish Jews, okay, Jews that came from Spain and Portugal in the, you know, in the 15th century, after the deportation of the Jews from Spain and Portugal by uh, uh, Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand in that famous decree that expelled all the Jews. And some of them eventually reached Hebron and they lived in Hebron for about 500 years, some of them. Uh, and they were all massacred by the local Palestinian population in 1929. Uh, they they were basically massacred, and the ones that were not, we're talking about over 100 and something that were massacred, and the rest had to basically flee for their lives, and that was the end of that Jewish community that was living there for 500 years. So what I'm trying to say that one of the reasons why the Jews are so insistent they want to settle specifically Hebron is also related to that massacre that took place and also related to the fact that Hebron is one of the, what we call, four holy cities for the Jews, alongside with Jerusalem and Tiberias and, and Safed up north. And what I'm trying to say that from their perspective, it, they don't really care who's the, you know, who governs Hebron? Who is the authority in Hebron? Uh, they want to live in Hebron. Uh, also, they don't really care about who's governing the West Bank. They want to live in the West Bank because this is where, you know, this is where the ancestral home, this is the heartland of, of, the Jew, of, the, of, of that ancient ancestral home that they came from. All right. A uh, couple more questions. Do you have yourself uh, Palestinian friends, Palestinian Arabs, or people from West Bank? It's very difficult to acquire Palestinian friends. Things here are going 
from day one, from the moment that you're more or less are born, you're going through separate paths. You're going to different kindergarten, you're going to different uh, elementary school and junior high and high school. The only time that you really get to actually have a conversation or to actually get to know an Arab Israeli or you know a Palestinian, let's say, uh, is maybe when you're in university, and also it's not necessarily the case. Depends where you're going to go to school. And at that point, when you're already 24, 25, because don't forget, Israelis are going to school, you know, kind of a, a later phase after the army, then your opinions are pretty much set about, you know, the other side. And also your friends are pretty much set because usually your friends are coming from, you know, from high school, from the army, whatever. If we would have been educated in the same school system, if the two societies were actually living side by side, literally in the same cities and in the same villages, maybe things could have been different. But I think that's maybe something that's going to happen in the future. Maybe in you know after things would come down, maybe one day when we're going to have peace, people will feel safer. And uh, but until uh, you know in a society that you have uh, this ongoing conflict. There's like mutual suspicion and mutual, you know, mutual antagonism towards one another. It's very difficult to kind of create friendships on that background. I just feel that there, it's like a chicken and egg problem. You want to you wanna have peace, but uh, you don't talk. And I think to me, uh, just by talking to you and to Satu, I already feel how like there's a lot of those conversations that could be had and could be heard and those friendly or maybe non-friendly but at least those um those dialogues i think uh, there's like the same um uh, on the other side that is sitting in his apartment right now and he's like i just want to live in peace and i'm sure there's a lot of those Ariks on both sides who are just like we just want to live in peace. Uh, or there are people who are just like, well, let's just talk. But because there's no way, there's no communication channels for regular people to talk to each other. That's why they have to, I guess they have to listen to what they're told. And uh, I mean, it's much better to go see, communicate and talk to people and figure out the common ground, in my opinion. And again, I'm, sure. I'm not living neither yeah. on any of yeah. those sides. I'm sure the average person wants just want wants to live his life and you know, and basically just have a you know, prosperous life and uh, and have peace and quiet. But um, unfortunately, it's uh, unfortunately it's uh, more complicated than that when you have um, different interests and different people and different you know factions. But uh, maybe one day. Have we'll you see. been to West Bank? Like I, I was talking to Satu, and I want to get your perspective on that. Uh, you listen to it as well. He's like, it's completely safe. You jump on a bus, you go to Ramallah, and you just go and party with people, and they're welcoming and they're happy to see you. Um, what is your what yeah, is your opinion you know, on that? Well, you know, I don't think if you're if you're going as a civilian, uh, if you're not uh, an IDF soldier or you don't look like a Jewish settler, um, 
in most cases, uh, you know, it's technically okay. But, and there is a huge but here, like we saw yesterday and like we saw in the last couple of months and like we saw in the last even couple of uh, decades, Israelis are not welcome in the West Bank. Uh, so I guess if you're a civilian, if you're coming from Europe or if, you're, if you don't have an Israeli citizenship and you want to tour the West Bank, there's no real danger or risk on your safety. Uh, I'm going there pretty often uh, because of, uh, you know, because of my job, I, I go there and I cross to the West Bank. Uh, but uh, in the end, uh, you know, for Israelis, uh, Israelis were uh, massacred in some cases. Israelis were killed uh, by terror attacks and so forth. Uh, in the West Bank, uh, civilians. Uh, so for an Israeli that is civilian, uh, I don't know if it's very recommended to live there. I mean, for example, I don't go and live in the West Bank. First, because I don't believe I should live there. But second, also from, uh, obviously, from security reasons. I don't want to live in a, in an area that, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of terror attacks and so forth. And you use the road you and West you Bank, can get like... Do you... You just, I mean, it's the same as we went with West Bank with you, right? You just drive by the road and then you're on the other side. Do you go to like a cafe in Ramallah or you never step out of the car in West Bank? Well, um, specifically to Ramallah, I didn't go, but basically I didn't go to, you know, I did go to Bethlehem a lot and so forth. And uh, I went to Shechem to Nablus uh, and so forth. But for example, when I go there, I don't say that I'm Israeli. I'm saying that I'm, you know, Italian, whatever, saying that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not from here. I'm trying to basically uh, kind of hide my identity as an Israeli. That's not something that I would go around and say, listen, I'm from Israeli, because I might run into the wrong Palestinian that doesn't really like Israelis, don't forget, again, this is an ongoing conflict. Maybe his brother or maybe his uh, relative got uh, killed or got uh, harassed by the IDF forces and he hates Israel. I don't know. So you don't want to take that chance and uh, you just uh, make sure that you're not going to tell them that you're Israeli uh, and you're going to speak in English. Uh, and I definitely don't feel that I'm super safe there. It's literally kind of risking your life. But for me, I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked too. For me, who is not Israeli citizen, even though I'm Jewish, but I guess it's hard to hard to tell as hard to tell about any anything about anybody. With my Canadian passport, if I go by myself to let's say Ramallah, do you think it will be safe or unsafe? I think for someone that is not part of the conflict, it's not a problem. If you look like. A... You know, like uh, an average Joe, like a European, like an American, whatever, Canadian, um, and you want to visit those territories, it's not really risky. It's not a problem. But, you know, it's uh, sometimes, I guess, uh, depends on the, you know, in the end, it's still an area of conflict. Awesome. But, uh, it's, not, but it's, not, it's not a problem, really. People yeah. go there. 
I'm planning to go after after all those discussions. I'm planning to go check it out um, next time I'm in the region. So if you want to be my Italian friend, <laughs> we can go check out together. <laughs> Two Italians uh, going in a sure. in a West Bank. Claro, claro. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing, man. Well, I uh, really appreciate your honest perspective. I know it's not that easy to talk on public spaces, but I really appreciate your your honesty and uh, you're my good friend. That's why I really wanted to hear your perspective on that. Um, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching. I hope you heard another perspective. So now you can decide who you want to go with. It's up to you. We are. Not, I'm not making any conclusions here. Uh, I'm just want to raise awareness, wake up some souls, some different perspectives. So thank you for watching. Bye bye.